Welcome to another episode of Mormon Discussion Podcast. I'm your host, Bill Real. Grateful to be with you today. I've got two guests back on. They have been on several times on the podcast before. We're talking today with uh, with Chris and Clay again. Uh, would the two of you guys just say hi and, and uh, any thoughts maybe you guys have before we get started? No, man. It's good to be with you. Having a lot of fun. Excited to talk about this cool topic. Yeah, Bill. Thanks for having us back on. No problem. So today we're going to talk about the Book of Mormon witnesses. And by that, we're certainly talking the three, we're talking the eight, and we're even talking some other ones that are outside of that. Uh, we wanted to uh, pay special attention today to to these 11 and, and again, a few others beyond that, but their experience and, and what they said afterward. And, and for the two of you guys, maybe just to start it off, we've been pulling from a lot of sources, putting a lot of quotes together putting a lot of statements and other other uh, evidence and experiences and testimony uh, to kind of pull all this together. And uh, just so you two know, I've got Richard Anderson's book sitting here. Um, Richard Anderson, professor at BYU, investigating the Book of Mormon Witnesses, uh, Richard Lloyd Anderson. Uh, what kind of sources are you guys working with to kind of put this together? I've got um, Preston Nibley's Witnesses of the Book of Mormon in front of me. And a couple of my favorite books that I own, uh, Dan Vogel's Early Mormon Documents. Uh, I tell you, these documents, these, these books were... <laughs> That's a good book, dude. These books were some of my faves for a long time. Now the Joseph Smith Papers Project is, you know, producing these uh, actual documents in high-res scans. But forever, this is all, what all of us used, was Dan Vogel's uh, amazing work that he put together. Yeah. I got uh, Quinn's book on Magic Worldview because I wanted to talk about some of the spiritual stuff on it, uh, the uh, spiritualized. I uh, got uh, Ronald Walker's uh, dialogue dialogue article up, Martin Harris, Mormonism's Early Convert, wrote in the 80s. And I've got uh, Palmer's book. I've also got uh, Dean Jesse's The Papers of Joseph Smith, autobiog- Autobiographical and Historical Writings from 1989. Another great book on this topic. History of the Church. You guys have outdone me. I just thought Richard Lloyd Anderson would be enough. <laughs> <laughs> so more than uh, that, dude. That's right. So anyway, we're gonna we're gonna it's gonna be a blast because we have pulled from just a lot of different sources. We're gonna share. Uh, I'll try to share some of the links to the books that we used, as well as lots of links to various websites that are having uh, conversations and dialogue about these these witnesses experiences we thought we'd start off with the three witnesses and and i just want to kind of start us off obviously we know who these are anybody listening knows who these three are each of you could name them we've got david whitmer martin harris and oliver cowdery uh cowdery's and I, the one thing i want to note as we start off we often see in the artwork of the church whitmer and harris especially having gray hair and looking like really old dudes having this experience where they've got arthritis and they're kneeling down on their knees and, and asking for, you know, a prayer for a visitation. But in reality, Cowdery's born in 1806, a year after Joseph Smith Jr. Um, Martin Harris is the oldest of the three, born in 1783. David Whitmer in 1805, the same year as the prophet. And so we ought to keep in mind that as we go through with these three witnesses and even into the 11, most of these men are in their early 20s. There's a couple in their 30s and only a couple in the in the midlife or later stages of life. And I think that's important because I think I think to start us off, 20-year-olds 
tend to be more open and more accepting of spiritual experiences, I think, than, than older people who tend to be more maybe cynical or, uh, more wanting of evidence because they've experienced life and perhaps been involved with, with being, uh, mistaken about things in their past. Um, any thoughts from you guys? Well, uh, something else I would add is that all the Whitmers, Hiram Page, Oliver Cowdery, and David Whitmer, are all related by marriage. So that means only the Smiths and Martin Harris are not. That's kind of an interesting fact. Mm, yeah, I mean, Martin Harris, right? How was Oliver related to Smiths and the Whitmers? There's a connection there. I'm trying to remember what it was, though. Right. Oliver is like the second cousin of Joseph Smith, like twice removed. And and so he his family stock comes back from Vermont where Joseph Smith is born. Oliver's doing the, the treasure digging thing. His family's known for doing the treasure digging thing. And so I, there's really not um, strong evidence that Joseph Smith Jr. and Oliver Cowdery would have been aware of each other. But they certainly are family maybe one branch away from your normal cousin. Right. And Hiram is uh, related to the Whitmers through marriage, right? Married to the Whitmers' daughters, right? John Whitmer's daughter? Peter Whitmer's daughter. That's right. uh, yeah, so Hiram Page is married to Catherine Whitmer, uh, one of the Whitmer daughters. Um, I don't ever see her name anywhere, so I don't think she saw Moroni. <laughs> <laughs> but, but there's three families there. And all three families were into the um, magic worldview, right? Seeing things outside of their physical uh, senses. Um, then that would kind of play into um, ramping up for the three witnesses to see what they said they saw. Right. In fact, um, I say this half jokingly, but I also say it half seriously. Chris, do we know how many of these people had seer stones? Um. According to Michael Quinn in his Magic Worldview book, he says that Hiram Page and Jacob and David had seer stones for sure, and maybe even John Whitmer did as well. Hmm. And we know Cowdery's using the divining rod. No. And Joseph's mm-hmm. on his third seer stone by this point. Right. <laughs> right. But I, one of the things, I mean, I guess you may wonder why there are so many Whitmers involved, and I guess it's a natural thing since... When Joseph moved the translation from Harmony, Pennsylvania to um, the Whitmer farm, you know, the Whitmers now are completely involved. I mean, they're walking into the house, walking in and out of the house while, while Joseph is, is uh, you know, translating the book. Right, right. And that's the only support system he's got, right? Cowdery and his wife and the Whitmers, essentially. Mm-hmm. Is it is it right in saying that the whole purpose of the three witnesses came about because uh, Joseph's translating and he comes across it uh, two or three times in the Book of Mormon, um, explaining that this book. Well, you know what? Let's just pull it up real quick. Second Nephi twenty seven twelve, right? He's translating. Um, the book shall be hid from the eyes of the world that the eyes of none shall behold it, save it be that three witnesses shall behold it by the power of God. Besides. Him to whom the book shall be delivered, and they shall testify of the truth of the book and the things therein. So Joseph comes across this, translates it. Three guys are excited. Hey, can we be one of the witnesses, right? Is that kind of what you guys uh, gathered from that? Yeah, that's that's the story that I've heard throughout 
my time in the church and 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 I should say here it seems if if Joseph's if Joseph's just making this up it seems like a pretty strange thing for him to put into the book this this chance to get other people involved who could expose him so we know the book of mormon says what it says about the three witnesses experience right they have seen the plates which contains this record they said, and we also know that they have been translated by the gift and power of God, for his voice hath declared it unto us, wherefore we know of a surety that the work is true. We also testify that we have seen the engravings which are upon the plates, and they have been shown to us by the power of God, not of man. And we declare with words of soberness that an angel of God came down from heaven, and he brought and laid before our eyes that what we beheld and saw the plates, that we beheld and saw the plates, and the engravings thereon. We know that it is by the grace of God, the Father, and our Lord Jesus Christ that we beheld and bear record that these things are true. So this is in every Book of Mormon that's ever been published, right? This this uh, witness testimony. Right, right. And it's very clear right there that they are explaining a very physical event, right, occurrence. So I, I'm not so sure. Like, I, I'd love to toss it out here. Like, what are your thoughts, guy? Do you, I mean, is, is it... Is it being talked about terms here? And then also, what is your understanding? Is it a physical experience or is it a spiritual one? Well, let's take it. I mean, these sentences are pretty clear. Unless unless you're willing to piece out, angel of God came down from heaven. Now, in order to see an angel of God come from heaven, you've got to be in a spiritual mindset, um, uh, an inner space type of event, not a physical event. So if we take it, sentence by sentence, then yeah, I guess you could read it between the lines and say that they intended on saying it was a spiritual event. But growing up, I always thought this was a very physical event. See, I take the opposite. Like, I, I grew up thinking the, the eight witnesses had a physical experience, and the three witnesses had a very spiritual experience. And and when we talk about an angel showing up, I mean, you've got you've got Paul in, in 2 Corinthians saying, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know, but I saw the third heaven. Like I just think that there's room at least for a spiritual experience to to not be in any way, shape, or form a physical event. And I think that's what makes this this discussion interesting is because there's really good evidence on both sides of this argument as we go through. I think we're gonna find as we discuss this further as we go into some of the statements that the witnesses make that this is largely a spiritual experience for both the three witnesses and the eight witnesses. Mm. And, and see, I feel like using Richard Lloyd Anderson's book, Chris, that I'm going to come down on, on this being a physical experience for at least for the eight. Um, but, but I'm open to whatever sources you guys have. I mean, I don't trust them as much, but I'm open to whatever sources you guys have uh, <laughs> to see. I guess we'll see. Sources. Well, I just, I hope Bill brought it more than one book to this part. <laughs> okay, gonna, well, we're we're going to see. end up feeling a little silly, I think. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, the other place we kind of run into some of this is, is DNC section 17. And because I did bring my scriptures too, guys, just so you know. And so DNC section 17 kind of sets this up a little bit more. You've got uh, this conversation going on about their, this experience. Behold, I say unto you, 
that you must rely upon my word, which if you do with full purpose of heart, you shall have a view of the plates and also of the breastplate, the sword of Laban, the Urim and Thummim, which were given to the brother of Jared upon the mount when he talked with the Lord face to face in the miraculous directors, which were given to Lehi while in the wilderness on the borders of the Red Sea. And it is by your faith that you shall obtain a view of them. And even by that faith, which was had by the prophets of old. And after you have obtained faith and have seen them with your eyes, you shall testify of them by the power of God. And this you shall do that my servant Joseph Smith Jr. may not be destroyed, that I may bring about my righteous purposes under the children of men in this work. And so we see like there's this give and take, like, yeah, you're going to see them with your eyes, but you're going to need to have faith to do it, which which doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Um, verse 5, it finishes up. It says, And you shall testify that you have seen them, even as my servant Joseph Smith Jr. has seen them. For it is by my power that he has seen them, and it is because he had faith. And so the way this contextualizes the idea, it almost plays both sides, right? They're going to see him as Joseph has, and Joseph says he's seen him. Like, it's physically. He's carried him in the woods. He's fought off attackers. He's hidden him beneath the hearth and in the barrel of beans. So for him, it was a physical event, and God seems to be telling them that they're going to have a physical event as well, but also that they need to have faith, which doesn't make a whole lot of sense if Joseph carries the plates out into the woods and shows these three witnesses like what kind of faith is needed for that. But but as we'll get into, their experience isn't a matter of Joseph just you know unveiling the plates from behind his back and pulling a cloth <laughs> off of them and showing these guys. <laughs> I, I was just going to say, do we know what they like to drink before we get into this? Do we know that if they were drinking and fasting and all this, like all the? Uh, I, I've even heard Clay that the like, I've heard a presentation at Sunstone that, that mushrooms got kicked up in the air. I, I think I think anything's worth mentioning and talking about, but I would say the evidence would all be you asserting it or or someone asserting it without any evidence there of it. Yeah, but if they were fasting, if they was in, if he was encouraging them to fast for a day before he throw in the alcohol mix and these guys could have been seeing some shit. <laughs> Absolutely. I might leave that in. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's what T. Edgar Lyon, T. Edgar Lyon says that about the Kirtland visions is he says that you fast for three days and drink a bunch of beer, you're going to see all kinds of things. Right. <laughs> and there's some claims here that even Harris, Martin Harris even told people that Joseph drank too much liquor when he was translating the Book of Mormon. Before I, I get into what I wanted to say, I I was thinking of a quote by Ezra Booth, an early member of the church that ends up leaving. But he said that Joseph Smith could see spirits and angels with his spiritual eyes and could see them as well with his eyes shut as he could with them open. Mm. So to me, that kind of says that these experiences... You know, people could have their eyes shut or they could have them open. It doesn't really matter because they're seen with the spirit. And I think it's important to remember that all these guys share one thing in common, and that's that they believe in second sight or seeing things with their spiritual eyes. They all share that in commonality. Right. They all come from folk magic backgrounds and superstitious uh, rituals and, and beliefs. Absolutely. So... Joseph says, not many days after the above commandment was given, we four, Martin Harris, David Whitmer, Oliver Cowdery, and myself, 
agreed to retire into the woods and try to obtain by fervent and humble prayer the fulfillment of the promises given in the above revelation, that they should have a view of the plates. We accordingly made a choice of a piece of woods convenient to Mr. Whitmer's house, to which we retired. And having knelt down, we began to pray in much faith to Almighty God to bestow upon us a realization of these promises. And then he goes on, According to previous arrangement, I commenced prayer to our Heavenly Father and was followed by each of the others in succession. We did not, at the first trial, however, obtain any answer or manifestation of divine favor in our behalf. We again observed the same order of prayer, each calling on and praying fervently to God in rotation, but with the same result as before. Upon this, our second failure, Martin Harris proposed that he should withdraw himself from us, believing, as he expressed himself, that his presence was the cause of our not obtaining what we wished for. <laughs> I, I think he had to probably use a restroom or something. Right? Yeah, you guys go, carry on without me. <laughs> you think that's all it was? <laughs> I mean, the guy had paid all the money. He wanted to see something. Why would you leave, man? You're going to miss a party. You're going to miss a movie. Especially after he's dropped out after the 116 pages are lost. I mean, this is his <laughs> one chance. This is his one chance to get back in good favor, right? He's been out of the loop for three months while Cowdery translates the thing with a little bit of help from the Whitmer family. And now he gets a second shot at being a part of this. And now he's going to walk away and tell everybody he has no faith? Yeah, that's a, yes. You bring up he a good point. As soon as he turns his back 20 yards away, hey, wow, Martin, you missed it. Like, oh. I mean, you can see if nothing's happening, Martin's the one guy who's saying, man, it ain't me. It ain't me. Look, I've already screwed this thing up enough. I've repented. I am clean as can be, and this ain't due to me. It's got to be Cowdery or, or Whitmer. It's got to be one of those guys. Oh, well, one of the things that's still brought up, I've always wondered, is since Martin Harris knew it was in the 116 pages and he knew what came out in the Book of Mormon, how come nobody asked him what the difference was? <laughs> you know? <laughs> Do you think people did and they just they didn't like his answer? <laughs> or do you think <laughs> Don't you think that's kind of a basic question somebody should have asked him? Why why didn't somebody say like what was on there and just you know at least tell us a couple a couple thoughts and ideas of things that transpired on those pages? So let's see. Smart and Harris uh, feels that he's the cause of not obtaining what they'd wished for, so he accordingly withdrew from us, and we knelt down again, and had not been many minutes engaged in prayer, when presently we beheld a light above us in the air, of exceedingly bright, of exceeding brightness, and behold, an angel stood before us. In his hands he held the plates, which he had been praying, which we had been praying for these to have in view of. He turned over the leaves one by one, so that we could see them, and discern the engravings thereon distinctly. So, I don't know if you asked the question already, but it seems... Uh, why why go into the woods to pray if the if the plates are are nearby or if they're doing this in the home why go into the woods exactly right it it adds credibility that it's not a physical experience right like Clay said why not just whip them out from under the blanket so I don't know you guys read a lot of Dan Vogel Chris you said you had his up so do you remember um, in his book he talks about uh, Joseph Smith says that he left after this happens with uh, David and Oliver. So he left David and Oliver, and he said he went in pursuit of Martin Harris, who I found at a considerable distance, fervently engaged in prayer. Both men joined in prayer, and according to Joseph, the same vision was open to our view. So I imagine what Martin left, went 100 yards away. Joseph sees uh, with David and Oliver the plates and the angel, and then goes and tries to track down Martin, right? 
it's important to note, uh, Dan Vogel says, that Smith, that Joseph never told to have carried the plates to either the woods where he's at with Calgary and Whitmer, nor does he say he carried them the considerable distance to where Harris was playing. Yet he and Harris were still able to see them, but only in a vision. Right. So again, not not a physical experience, but a spiritual one. Absolutely. Hmm. Hmm. And and I think that's kind of begins to be the mo of of the three, and and as we go forward, kind of how they talk about this throughout their lives. But that it's not it's not like Joseph carries the sixty to three hundred pound plates into the woods and you know lays them out for these guys to see it. But rather, these guys are kneeling, they're praying, and then it opens up in visionary form. I guess. <laughs> Yeah, let's establish that. That's where it starts as a very spiritual um, account retelling, right? And uh, and there's several people who now jump in kind of later on. Uh, I don't know if you guys are familiar with with Marvin Hill. Um, he's kind of a guy that I'll quote here throughout our conversation. But but Marvin Hill is one of the first books I read on the Prophet Joseph Smith after I joined the church. And, and it was a pretty thick book, if I remember right, about three inches thick. And it was, it was a hardbound copy that I got through my library system. And just a fascinating book. And Marvin Hill was a member of the church, I believe an active, faithful member. And he writes this biography and it's really done well. But Marvin here says a few things about this first vision. He says the evidence is extremely contradictory in this area, but there is a possibility that the three witnesses saw the plates in vision only. And we'll get into some of that contradiction, but but kind of an interesting statement from a faithful historical scholar looking at the quotes and, and saying like there's something, there's just too many things here that are kind of brushing against each other. Um, William Glenn retelling what Martin Harris had stated. Uh, gentlemen, do you see that hand? Are you sure you <laughs> see it? Are your eyes playing a trick or something? No? Well, as sure as you see my hand, so sure did I see the angel in the plates. Now, that makes it more of a physical experience. Martin seems to be saying with absolute certainty that just like you see that physical object, I saw these objects. Um, Martin Harris Affidavit. I know what I saw. I have seen what I have seen, and I have heard what I have heard. I have seen the gold plates. An angel appeared to me and others, unquote. Uh, a couple others here. John A. Clark, a contemporary non-Mormon. Now, this is a third-hand statement. Now, here's the other trouble. Not only is it a third-hand statement, but John Clark doesn't tell us the person he hears it from. So this, you're going to see this quote. This is where the spiritualized comes from. And this is why I just don't find it as credible. But he says, um, Martin saw the plates, quote, with eyes of faith. And... And every time that the comment of spiritualize is used in the quotes that I put together for this, it comes off as they're not quite as credible. But I, I will say, guys, that it, it definitely is – I think uh, – I'm confident in saying that Martin uses that term over and over, spiritualize. I think he does use that wording. I just think that the context of how he's using it, those statements are not as credible um, I know you guys have other things there. Um, let me finish off here with, with two others. John H. Gilbert, one of the printers with the E.B. Grandin print shop, which I think is interesting, says, quote, Martin was in the office when I finished setting up the testimony of the three witnesses. Uh, 
Harris Cowdrain Whitmer. I said to him, quote, Martin, did you see those plates with your naked eyes? Martin looked down for an instant, raised his eyes up and said, no, I saw them with my spiritual eye, unquote. Pomeroy Tucker states Harris used to practice a good deal of his characteristic jargon about seeing with the spiritual eye and the like. Um, so you get some of that kind of context of, of his use of those things. Um, <clears throat> one of the books I have in front of me is the papers of Joseph Smith by Dean C. Jesse. Um, one of the, one of the books I've had in my library for a long time that I've read multiple times, really like it. One of the things that Dean Jesse points out in the book is that Martin Harris and Oliver Cowdery both at separate times claim to have seen the plates in separate visions before seeing them together. Um, which really leads us more to a spiritual experience again as well, since they saw the plates before Joseph showed them to him or before the angel showed them to him. Mm, that's interesting. So before the, before the three witness account, these guys already had some visionary experience with the plates. Martin Harris and Oliver Cowdery claimed to have seen them in vision. Yeah. Mm. Before they saw them together. Mm. Um, David Whitmer says a ton about his vision of the plates um, he's interviewed by James Moyle, who is a, a young LDS attorney. He, he, James Moyle visits with David Whitmer for about two and a half hours in 1885. This is getting close to the end of Whitmer's life. But Moyle writes that he was somewhat disappointed in Whitmer's spiritual explanations, that he wasn't as materialistic as I had wished, he writes. One of the things he says is, and this is David Whitmer again, he says, In June 1829, I saw the angel by the power of God. The angel appeared in the light. Between us and the angel there appeared a table, and there lay upon it the sword of Laban, the ball of directors, the record, and the interpreters. The angel took the record and turned the leaves and showed it to us by the power of God. They were taken away by the angel to a cave, which we saw by the power of God while we were yet in the spirit. And that's reprinted in, uh, that's the interview by Edward Stevenson that's reprinted in the Saints Herald in 1884. Didn't David Whitmer also, in June of 1829, also say that, um, that they saw one of the Nephites carrying the records in a knapsack on his way to the Hill Cumorah? Like, see a vision of a Nephite <laughs> backpack? Da- da- you're right. David Whitmer claimed that he and Oliver Cowdery and Joseph Smith in 1829, saw one of the Nephites carrying the records in a knapsack on his way to the Hill Cumorah. And what's, what's even funnier about that is they also said they saw the same Nephite under a shed at the Whitmer farm. Just hiding that's under the shed? <laughs> yeah. That's in that same Edward Stevenson interview. Oh, that's, that's <laughs> interesting. Oh, what's that? It just gets better and better. I, I think you can see how these guys were whipped up into the spiritual mindset honestly if you're seeing if you're having dreams that you're going to be shown the plates before you're actually shown the plates in a vision anyways what's the what's no between the you know dream reality dream state and reality well you can see david whitmer oliver cowdery and joseph smith kind of walking down the road seeing a guy with an apsack and them all thinking i bet that's a nephite with the record look at he's on his way to the hill he's going in that direction and it's just some hobo with his dinner behind his back. Well, then they later see him under the under the shed at the Whitmer farm. Hey, is that that same guy? I think it's that same guy. And, and in regards to that table, um, 
Zenas Gurley was an RLDS apostle who interviewed Whitmer around the same time, and he asked him, he asked Whitmer, do you know the plate scene with the angel on the table were real metal, and did you touch them? Whitmer, we did not touch or handle the plates. Gurley, was the table literal wood, or was the whole a vision such as often occurs in dreams? Whitmer, the table had the appearance of literal wood as shown in the vision, vision in the glory of God. I also saw the interpreters in the holy vision. Mm. Mm, which, which again leaves it kind of more open to being a, a spiritual experience and not having a, a physical component to it. Yeah, as in that same interview, Gurley asks if the three witnesses actually did touch the real metal, and Moyle, who's conducting the interview, says that Whitmer repeated to me that he did not see and handle the plates, that he did see and hear the angel, though, in a vision, but he did not handle the plates physically. Kind of take him at his word here, that he's not touching or holding or physically touching the plates at all. Maybe, but then you've got Oliver Cowdery, um, you know, in his last testimonies and even when he was on his deathbed talking about handling the plates with his own hands plates from which the book one was transcribed uh handled with my hands the holy interpreters yeah well yeah. oliver cadry oliver cadry says here um and this is in uh, vogel early mormon documents oliver cadry says i beheld with my eyes and handled with my hands the gold plates from which it was translated and then later speaking of that, later speaking of that instance, Brigham Young adds, and this is out of the Journal of Discourses, Brigham Young adds to that, that Oliver Cowdery saw these plates and they were in a cave. And he would not deny that he had seen or handled them. He had been in the cave. So, uh, are we going to say that this cave really existed, guys, or not? Do we think there's a cave inside the Hill Cumorah? I, I don't. I mean, I don't. I, I think the apologetic response would be that they saw some other location in vision and assume it's the Drumlin there in New York. I I just don't buy into that inside the Hill Cumorah is all the Nephite records and, and a cave with all these. I, it, that just doesn't make any sense to me with what we know about the Hill Cumorah and what's actually what kind of hill it is, how it was formed. And, and all the efforts made to try and locate something on that hill. So you would disagree with John Young when he says in 1832, Bill, that he was escorted by a guide to the, to the cave? And he says, he says, quote, We arrived at the cave in the side of the hill into which we entered. My guide went to a corner of the room where there lay a large chest, and he opened it. He said, These are the plates. My guide handled the plates of fine gold, and after we examined them, he said, we could depart, and as we were leaving the cave, he gave me the box containing the plates and told me to preserve them. <laughs> well, then where are they? That's that's a statement by John Young. <laughs> by here's, John my, Young. here's my issue. When you describe when he describes that cave, tell me if that doesn't paint the picture in your mind of these these digs that these treasure diggers are doing. Like they're digging into the sides of hills and they're digging out caves. It it seems to make more sense to me that they're not walking into some cave in the Hill Cumorah, but that they're being led into some of one of these, one of these treasure digging expedition caves. And, and maybe they're thinking that's where the record was. And again, I think like Clay said, they're whipping themselves up and they're, they're seeing these things, but that's not the reality of the experience. There's no treasure dig. 
I shouldn't say that. There is with Lumen Walters, but there's no treasure dig on the Hill Cumorra that is a cave-like structure. There's no place to walk into the side of the hill. And, and so you're talking about a visionary experience anyway, right? It's not like someone's just walking into the hill and the hill opens up for them. It's, it's either there or it isn't. <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. One of these guys talks about a door opening up, though. Let me find the quote. Just a sod door. It just hinges and just opens. And then behind that sod door, the dirt is just removed. Here's a, here's a quote by John Landers, who was a member of the church and in 1836. He says, I was carried away in vision and stood on the hill Camorra. I looked and saw the box containing the plates. The bottom of the box was covered by the breastplate. In the center of the box, resting on the breastplate, were three pillars. Upon the pillars rested the plates, which shone like bright gold. I also saw lying in the box a round body wrapped in a white substance, and this I knew to be the ball of directors. There's another member of the church that says he saw a cave. Well, there were a bunch of guys that were claiming to have been shown the plates by an angel as well. Lyman Johnson, Harrison Burgess. They were all saying that they had, you know, that they should have been part of the 11 witness. But, I mean, there's one right here in Palmer's book that says Joseph Smith Jr. saw Captain Kidd sailing on the Susquehanna River during a fresh freshet, <laughs> and that he buried two pots of gold and silver. Have you read that one, guys? Yeah, I've seen that one, too. It, so you guys can see it's so easy to... There's so many of these people having spiritual experiences that are connected to what's going on with the Book of Mormon that it's so easy to get off into the weeds here with with making the argument that everybody's saying they have something they've seen in regards to this. And I, I just don't think it's accurate for 90% of this stuff to hold up. Like, it just doesn't. And and so, I don't know. In my mind, I... I don't know what you do with all of it. I think you have to, if, if this, if the church is true, then you have to say like the three witnesses had a real experience and that because it's part of the conversation and people are interested in Mormonism and people are joining the church, that other people are whipping themselves up into experiences. And, and I've seen that in my own life. I've, there's experiences I've had that I think are really real. And then I've, and I've had other people share experiences. And some of my own too, looking back, and I say that that just wasn't that just wasn't accurate. Does that make sense? Yeah, I was just looking at some quotes by Martin Harris that are in Dan Vogel's early Mormon documents books. Um, here's one Harris given uh, to testified in front of Anthony Metcalf of Elkhorn, Idaho. He says, "Quote: I never saw the golden plates, only in a visionary or in trance state." While praying, I passed into a state of entrancement, and in that state, I saw the angel and the plates. And then here's another quote. Here's another quote. Did you see the plates and the engraving on them with your bodily eyes? Harris says, I did not see them as I do that pencil case, yet I saw them with the eye of faith. Right. And and I think the critic in the skeptical side of me is going to pick up on that and say, like, man, nothing happened. But I, but I think it's at least worth saying, like, if these three had a spiritual experience, then then is it fair for them to describe it in that way? And I think it is. I think it's fair for someone to say, like, no, I didn't I didn't see a real physical object in front of me, but I saw this this spiritual thing that I saw in vision. And, and I think for the three witnesses, I think, I think the eight are different, but I think for the three witnesses, 
that's sufficient enough to hold out hope that something happened. Yeah, that's a good point. Clay, was there some other things that Oliver said? I know you were focusing on Oliver Cowdery. What other kind of stuff did, did, did that kind of bring to the surface of things that Oliver talked about? Oliver seemed to describe it more of a physical event than the other two. I, that's what I believe. And then we kind of know the story of Oliver, um, uh, getting sideways with Joseph. I believe he was excommunicated in 1838. Is that right? Right. Yep. Yeah. Died, uh, died in 43, 1843. Is that right? He wasn't very young. He wasn't very old, right? Oliver Cowdery. I think he died in 1850 or so, didn't he? Hmm. Maybe I'm thinking he was 43 years old, which would be right around 1850. But just before breathing his laughs, this is one of his testimonies. He asked his attendants to rise him up in bed that he might talk to the to the family and his friends who were present. He told them to live according to the teachings contained in the Book of Mormon and promised them if he would do this, that they would meet him in heaven. And he, he then said, lay me down and let me fall asleep. A few moments later, he died without a struggle. So, I mean, he sounds like he maintained his testimony, held on to that in his uh, whole life, even though he didn't live very as long as the other two, but he held on to that. Yeah, and I think that's the case with really all three of these guys. I, I think Harris, there's a quote or two where he seems to be getting, you know, be in the tavern and maybe having a little too much to drink and <laughs> tends to kind of hint that that these guys didn't see anything or touch anything and... But again, I, I think those sources are just not as credible. I think it's fair to say that these three men went to their deathbed holding this testimony as, as you know, not bailing on it, not not recanting it. I think Harris's testimonies, uh, uh, the uh, contrast in his physical and spiritual type of testimonies were uh, are problematic. I think those ones, if you take him separate, I think that they uh, they raise a raise an issue, but. B. Martin Harris in the 19th century, a man that's trying to maintain his honor. He's lost a lot of honor, right? Uh, his reputation isn't the best. Uh, doesn't have much credibility. And so when he's hanging out with his buddies and they're drinking, he wanted to try to maintain some sense of honor. And, uh, I mean, that was a, these guys would duel it out over their honor. So I think by have earlier on in his life saying that he had seen something and then people are pushing him later on in his life uh what did you really see i think he he just didn't i mean the guy joined five different religions before joining mormonism right right yeah i I was gonna say i I think he's a seeker i think he's a seeker i i uh i wouldn't i guess i wouldn't put him in the camp you guys would put him in he was a baptist he was a presbyterian he was a quaker a universalist all before he met joseph smith and i believe he was wasn't he 46 when he met Joseph Smith, I mean, he'd already lived. Yeah, mid forties. You know, most of a lifetime. And then after that, after he uh, leaves the church and gets excommunicated, he then goes on and claims to be a witness for other people. Um, you remember that crazy guy, Gladden Bishop, who claimed to have uh, the interpreters and the and the the Leahona yeah. and seven sacred objects. Martin Harris was a witness for him. Said that he was the real deal. Yeah. Later joins the Strangites. I mean, he he was a, a seeker before he met Joseph, and continued to be a seeker after Joseph. I, I guess, Bill, mm. going back to your your original question, none of these guys ever denied their testimony of the Book of Mormon. But I mean, if you put Martin's feet to the fire, he never denied his testimony of being a shaker either. You know, 
Um, right. So what what would he be willing to deny to with to hold his honor? That's what I'm trying to say. Right. No, and I totally get it. And like you say, I mean, Cowdery saying he handles the plates. The loophole there is maybe Cowdery's allowed to handle them underneath the sheet while he's translating. Maybe he's speaking about a different experience than out in the woods with with Martin Harris and with David Whitmer. But the other two seem to describe it as a spiritual experience. Martin seems more wishy-washy on how he's describing it, but Whitmer seems to hold pretty firm other than the one quote that uh, that Chris read where he was reluctant to express it in determined kind of physical terms. Um, talking about Oliver Cowdery, Clay, you've got uh, Elizabeth Ann Whitmer, who is Cowdery's wife. Uh, she says, quote, My husband Oliver Cowdery bore his testimony to the truth of the divine origin of the Book of Mormon as one of the three witnesses of the Book of Mormon. So you have these spouses, right? And and people open up and they have these vulnerable conversations in, in their relationships with with their significant other, and and yet she's saying that to his dying breath, Oliver holds on to that testimony. Uh, Stephen Burnett, in a letter written in 1838, says, quote, I have reflected long and deliberately upon the history of this church and weighed the evidence for and against it, loath to give it up. But when I came to hear Martin Harris state in a public congregation that he had never saw the plates with his natural eyes, only in vision or imagination, Neither Oliver nor David, and also that the eight witnesses never saw them and hesitated to sign that instrument for that reason, but were persuaded to do it. The last pedestal gave way in my view. Our foundations, our foundations was sapped and the entire superstructure fell a heap of ruins. I therefore three weeks since in the stone chapel gave a full history of the church since I became acquainted with it. The false preaching and prophesying, etc., of Joseph, together with the reasons why I took the course which I was resolved to do, and renounced the Book of Mormon with the whole scene of lying and deception practiced by Joseph Smith and Sidney Rigdon in this church, believing, as I verily do, that it is all a wicked deception palmed upon us unawares. I was followed by Warren Parrish, Luke Johnson, and John Boynton, all of who concurred with me. After we were done speaking, Martin Harris arose and said he was sorry for any man who rejected the Book of Mormon, for he knew it was true. He said he had hefted the plates repeatedly in a box with only a tablecloth or a handkerchief over them, but he never saw them, only as he saw a city through a mountain, and said he never should have told the testimony of the eight was false. If it had not been picked out of the air, should have let it pass as it was. Now, Brother Johnson, if you have anything to say in favor of the Book of Mormon, I should be glad to hear it. And he closed his case. Now, here's the issue. Martin can say whatever he wants about the eight, but he wasn't there. And so it's really not fair to allow Martin Harris to speak for those eight witnesses. He wasn't in that experience at all. And and so he may be allowing some of what he experienced and just assuming that's what they had as well. Sure, it was influential, right? Didn't you? That testimony alone in 1838 caused a ton of people to leave, a third of the church or something like that. Wasn't? I mean, not that testimony, but a lot of other things were happening in Kirtland. But wasn't he pretty influential with that? I mean, you get people leaving or essentially um, bearing testimony that the whole thing's a fraud. But I think some of these guys come back just a few weeks later. I, I don't. 
I don't know if it has a lasting value on more than three or four of them. Okay. I was going to add that this quote that you just read by Stephen Burnett, the context behind that is that the dissenters are all meeting in the Kirtland Temple after the saints have been kicked out of Kirtland in 1838, and they're trying to start a new church, and they're trying to figure out what they're going to keep from the original church church and what they're going to uh, jettison. And Stephen Burnett doesn't want to keep the Book of Mormon, and a lot of the guys in the room don't want to keep the Book of Mormon. They want to kick it to the curb. And the context of this is all of, is uh, Martin Harris is saying, absolutely, I'm keeping the Book of Mormon. We're not kicking, we're not getting rid of the Book of Mormon. We're absolutely keeping it. And that's the reason he gives this quote. It is interesting. And, and, and the other thing, too, is you have Martin talking and what he's saying specifically in the first person, but you have Burnett essentially quoting Martin from the night before or four nights before or two months earlier from something said at the tavern or whatever. I just think you have to kind of parse these things out and and allow some extra room for these things to not be taken as Martin absolutely said nobody saw it, and it's because the eight witnesses told Martin they hadn't seen it, and the whole thing's just a fraud. I just don't think that's a fair leap to make with, with Burnett's uh, with Burnett's quote. Hmm. There's a, a good quote in Marvin Hill's book that you referenced earlier. It says, quote, there is a testimony from several independent inv- interviewers, all non-Mormon, that Martin Harris, David Whitmer, said they saw the plates with their spiritual eyes only. Among others, A. Metcalf and John Gilbert, and John Gilbert is the guy that set the type for the Book of Mormon, as well as Reuben P. Harmon and Jesse Townsend gave testimonies to this effect. He goes on, quote, this is contradicted, however, by statements like that of David Whitmer in the Saints Herald 1882, where he says these hands handled the plates, these eyes saw the angel. But then again, that's a quote we wrote earlier, that we read earlier by Z.H. Gurley, elicited from Whitmer a not so positive response to the question, did you touch them? His answer was, we did not touch or handle the plates. It's very contradictive. It seems like it depends on the setting these guys are telling the story. And the context that they're telling the story and actually the time of their life. David Whitmer's pretty, pretty close to the end of his life here when he's given the statements. Yeah, there's, uh, sorry. I was just going to tell you one of my favorite, one of my favorite, uh, quotes by David Whitmer. He was giving to an interviewer, uh, in 1887. So this is a little, little after the, uh, in the St. Harold Chris 1882 that you just quoted. 1887. Of course we were in the spirit when we had the view, for no man can behold the face of an angel except in a spiritual view. But we were in the body also, and everything was as natural to us as it is at any time. Martin Harris called it being a vision, being in vision. So this is still David talking, but he said Martin Harris called it being in vision, a bright light, and uh, enveloped us where we were. And there in a vision or in the spirit we saw and heard just as it is stated in my testimony in the Book of Mormon. So I like that one because it allows you to to say, well, he explains the only way somebody could behold something like this would be in a spiritual um, sense. But we are also in the body also. You know, we, are, we are in the body also. Everything was still natural to us, but to view things in the spirit you have to be in a spiritual mindset or you, with your spiritual mindset. I thought that was probably the best one I've read. Mm, and, and my one, my one hiccup, like I'm, I'm okay. Like letting these three men have a, a spiritual experience where they, 
they see something not with their natural eyes. And, and maybe the reason I'm prone to kind of lean that way is because as, as cynical and skeptical as I have become, I, I still look back when I prayed about the Book of Mormon and, and I say this with all sincerity, like I had a spiritual experience and there was someone else in the room at that time and they didn't see what I thought I was seeing. Like I would, I could only describe that experience as seeing something with my spiritual eyes, but it was also very real. And, and I saw what I would look back now with my memory and say were specific things. And I've got no way to reconcile that other than to, to call it a spiritual experience and to say that I saw things, but not with my natural eyes. The one hiccup for me as I listen to us go through these three witnesses is David Whitmer in that last one you read, Clay. These guys are bouncing around on whether they did touch the plates or didn't touch the plates. And, and that to me is a little uncomfortable. Like, like I grant that Whitmer's, you know, in, in, you know, 60 something years old at this point, almost 70. And maybe his me- he's got a false memory about what happened, but it it seems like these guys are contradicting themselves on whether the experience was completely spiritual. Angel shows them the plates, flips the plates for them, or if they're actually holding these plates and touching them and handling them um, along with the other objects that were buried with them. Yeah, that's the difference to me. Is if you're you describing your spiritual experience, Bill. Don't you, do you think you could uh, be in a spiritual trance like you were and still lift and touch something that weighed 40 to 60 pounds? Yeah, I don't know because what I experienced was – what I saw was about 20 foot from me. There wasn't even an opportunity to, to reach out and touch or feel. But if, but looking – like in that moment, it was so real to me. It locked me into believing in the church and getting baptized and and – it, it was as real to me as anything, but it all, but I was also very much cognizant in the moment that it was not a physical thing happening. Even though my eyes or my brain perceived something a distance from me, I also recognized that it wasn't physical. And if there were 40 other people in the room, I would still be the only one who was seeing it. Really? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, very Bill, much. This, this, this reminds me of, um, the story of Charles Finney. You, you're probably familiar with this. Charles Finney had a vision of Christ in 1821, a year after the first vision took place. Yeah, did we youngest... talk about this in the first vision episode? Yeah, I think we did. I th- actually, I think we did. You're right. Um, where the three of us were discussing uh, visions and other people that were seeing Christ around the same time. But as you were talking about your experience, it made me think of what he said later in life. If you'll remember, he's a young attorney in Salt in um, New York, he goes to a revival meeting during the day and becomes converted, born again. And later, when he returns to his law office, he sees Christ standing in the dark. And it was a powerful vision for him. He leaves the law and becomes a preacher and dedicates his life to to becoming a, a minister, a traveling traveling preacher. Um, when he writes his autobiography, some like 50 or 60 years after the event, he later says, even though I saw Christ in my office, I know that it wasn't actually Christ standing in my office. I know that it's impossible that he would have just been standing there. But nevertheless, I, I know what I saw or I believe what I saw. And that, and I, re- I don't remember exactly what he says, but it's something to the effect that God made my brain think 
that I was actually seeing Christ standing there, although I know that it was impossible for him to be there. So the vision was still important to him, but he also realized the limitations and, and didn't didn't try to say it was a literal vision of Christ. Mm, it, right. Like this sounds like a rational guy who's saying, look, I saw what I saw, but I realize it's not it's not a real physical thing, but it still had an impact on me. It still it still was real in some sense of the word. And maybe that would be the rhythm or the latitude we need to give these witnesses that they went through something. They saw something that gave them a testimony of the Book of Mormon, even when it got hard, even when they've left the church, even when uh, the popular thing to do would have been to deny what they'd seen, they still held to it. And that means it was a powerful experience for them, regardless of whether it was physical or spiritual. Right, right. And, and I think there is more room with the threes experience. Like, like we kind of see that it's somewhat of a spiritual experience, and so there's a lot more flexibility for how God would make that happen or not make that happen. I think as we get into the eight, which we're going to jump into here next, that this becomes a little more tangible. This is a much more physical experience. And, and you'll see that by the things these folks are saying. Um, the eight witnesses. So let's just jump into them. We've got Christian Whitmer born 1798, Jacob Whitmer born 1800, Peter Whitmer Jr. born 1809, John Whitmer, 1802, Hiram Page, 1800, Joseph Smith Sr., 1771, Hiram Smith, 1800, Samuel Smith, 1808. So that puts these men at around the age of 30, with Joseph Smith Sr. nearing 60, and Samuel and Peter Whitmer at around 21 to 22, respectively. Um, again, for the most part, young guys again, but here you have the eight witnesses and, uh, and, and these guys, as we'll get into, describe a much more physical experience. Yeah, they're, you know, in the Book of Mormon, you've got the testimony of the three and the eight, and it's very similar, right? It doesn't say, uh, you know what, let me all pull it up right here. We beheld and saw the plates and the engravings thereon. So the eight witnesses, very similar to the engravings, and they also had seen and hefted and that's the key word, I think, hefted, and know of a surety that they said Smith has got the plates of which we have spoken. Um, that's a word we don't use very often, right? Hefted? How do you heft something? What's the la- when's the last time you hefted something, Bill? And what does it mean? <laughs> the last time I hefted something. What's well, um, so funny? I don't well, know why everyone's laughing. Because he's asking me to, to name the last thing I picked up and carried across the room. I mean, heft is to to grab and pick up from a, something sitting in a still position and to pick it up and move it or to lift it up and see what its weight is, uh, to heft it. Yeah. But I couldn't yeah. name the last thing I had. Isn't it weird? They got the chance to lift them up. That's what I would have wanted. I would have wanted that opportunity if I was one of the three. They just got to see Joseph thumbing through the pages. I want to pick that crap up. Right. And they not only hefted it, Clay, but they saw it. So they not only saw the plates and hefted them. So if you just hefted them, you could say they were in a box and covered by a sheet. But when they say they saw the plates, that seems like they're indicating, at least in the, the written testimony of the Book of Mormon, that they visually saw them. Well, let me throw uh, let me throw a few wrenches into this. For example, who wrote the testimony of the eight witnesses? We don't have individual affidavits, which has always been something that surprised me. These guys did individually 
a witness statement and sign it, which is really the custom of the day, rather than Joseph. Joseph wrote it, right? I'm not sure we know for sure. I think that's our assumption is that it's Joseph and Oliver writing it, but we don't have a date for it. It doesn't say, you know, we saw it on this date, like you would an official affidavit. An official affidavit would say, you know, I saw it on this date. This is where we were. You know, it, it's missing those details that an official affidavit would would have. I've just always been surprised these guys didn't individually write and sign an affidavit. They're all kind of bulked into one. Is that, is that something that surprises you guys, too, or not really? First sign of correlation. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> the speedling of the... Let's just streamline this. Uh, we do. <laughs> if have, I remember correctly, go ahead. Weren't they hesitant to sign it? Weren't some of these guys hesitant to sign it? There's there's a quote to that effect that there's some hesitancy on some to sign it. We do have of the eleven witnesses, we do have one of their signatures in their own handwriting, and that's Oliver Cowdery, because on the printer's manuscript, he puts all eleven signatures, I believe, the three witnesses and the eight witnesses. And he's writing it out in his handwriting for the printer's manuscript. So his signature's on there, guys. Do you guys feel better? <laughs> uh, I think it's still problematic that, uh, Oliver's the one that signs them all for the, for the printer and that they don't do individual affidavits. That's just something that, it's always been something that's interesting to me. Would it have been easy in that day and age to, to put cursive signatures into the actual printed, you know, 5,000 copies of the Book of Mormon? I don't know. I think you'd have to... It seems like it would just make sense to be print. I think you'd have to create individual type um, for the signature, wouldn't you? Somebody would have to carve that out. Right. With the cost and everything, it just makes sense to me that they would have sidestepped that, not even saw it as an issue, and just went with the cheaper way to get it done, which is to put the stuff in just print. Yeah, maybe. Something else I was going to throw at you guys is of these eight men that sign this there's only i mean all you have you have the four whitmers the three smiths and hiram page so the eight witnesses you have two families and one individual these are uh, you know well, you, you, you would go I, ahead i think you could even say two families because hiram page was married to uh peter whitmer's uh, sister sure yeah, the brother-in-law whitmer by blood okay gotcha but hey man we can influence our brother-in-laws right <laughs> You're one of us. You'll sign this. <clears throat> um, so something else I I feel is interesting about the eight witnesses is of the eight guys that say that, that uh, of the eight witnesses, only three individually report later that they saw and touched the records. You know, on a on a, on a secondary basis. Right. So of the eight, only three are on the record saying they touched them and they saw them. That's, that's significant. It's not that the other ones said anything contrary. It's just we don't have anything on the record from these guys. There's, there's really very little outside of, uh, John Whitmer and then a couple statements by a couple of others. Whitmer has predominantly the majority of this stuff. The other guys make a comment or two, and then everybody else is just silent. Yeah, I was going to say Hiram Page never says that he saw and handled the plates. And in a letter to William McClellan, he says that he couldn't deny what he saw to say that I did not see those holy angels who came and showed themselves to me as I was walking through the field would be treating the God of heaven with contempt. 
So he doesn't say anything about seeing plates or holding them or handling them. Just that he saw some angels. But instead sees an angel. Sees, yeah, a whole different experience. Sees some angels while he's walking through a field. Huh. Which is not the witness experience. Right, right. His seems more individual. Chris, do you find McClellan to be trustworthy in terms of as a source material? I know, I know most apologists completely just discount him and write him off altogether. Your thoughts maybe on just so the, just so the listeners get a feel for the amount of credibility that should be added into something like that. Oh, I don't know that that's the, I don't know that that's the current thinking. McClellan was a prolific writer. We have lots and lots of his letters. Um, I think he's kind of in the same camp as, you know, like the Hurlbut affidavits that forever have been just um, seen as critical of the church and probably not accurate. Today, I think our, our best researchers take all of the evidence, all of the writings from back then, and look at all of them individually and, and, and don't discount anything today. I know for a long time it was seen as the right thing to do if it was critical not to, not to include it. But McClellan, I think, is a, a treasure trove of information. So Theodore Turley interrogates one of the eight witnesses, John Whitmer, and he says, quote, You have published to the world that an angel did present those plates to Joseph Smith. Whitmer replied, I now say I handled those plates. There were fine engravings on both sides. I handled them. And he described how they were hung. He says, quote, they were shown to me by a supernatural power. Guys, Mm. why would a supernatural power be necessary if the plates actually existed? Like we said earlier, why didn't Joseph just pull the cloth off and show them to him? Why is a supernatural power necessary? I'm not sure. Honestly, I don't I don't know. But I'm I'm also thinking of John Whitmer being asked by, uh, you know, that Baptist reverend that was in the neighborhood a week before the church um, church was formed, March 1830. He stopped by the Whitmer's home. So you can imagine all these Whitmer's in there. The eight witnesses affirmed to David Marks, the reverend, that an angel had shown them certain plates of metal having the appearance of gold that were dug out of the ground by Joseph Smith. Uh, then they went on to explain the Book of Mormon and some of the things, teachings inside. John Whitmer says, I now say I handled those plates. There were fine engravings on both sides. I handled them. Um, I don't know. I, I it, Going back to your question, Chris, why would a supernatural power be necessary? Well, I can see why it's necessary with the three witnesses, because you have an angel involved, so supernatural power is going to be necessary. But if you're just taking eight guys out into the meadow to show them the plates that are physical objects, why do you need, what's the need for supernatural power? I will say it's bothersome. Again, if I'm, um, if I'm somebody who's delving into the deeper church history and I was presented a simple narrative through the three hour block for my entire life and now I'm digging into the data and I'm reading what these guys said and what they didn't say and who's saying who said what I, I'm, I'm coming to grips with the fact that these guys aren't really keeping a consistent story straight in terms of whether the experience was physical or whether it was spiritual. We talked earlier that, like you say, Chris, the three are permitted to have the spiritual experience and, and it could happen however. But these eight, I mean, this is Joseph carrying the plates out in a box, dropping them onto the log, pulling it out of the box, taking the little sheet off of them and exposing the plates to these eight men and letting them flip through and feel them and touch them and heft them. 
and, and yet you have these guys contradicting themselves on whether that's what happened or whether an angel showed them and it was a spiritual manifestation instead of physical. Yeah. Yeah. In fact, the, it would bother me. The eight witnesses are able to give descriptions like, you know, the dimensions of the plates were eight by six by eight by six or seven inches, whatever they say. And they weighed 40 to 60 pounds and, you know, they were held together with three rings. I mean, they give a really detailed description that we don't have from the three witnesses. And I think one of the differences is this, the three witnesses are experiencing something supernatural. Although the eight witnesses also say that. And that just, that's a, that's intriguing to me because it should be just a physical experience. Here's what we saw. Here's where it was. Here's what we did. We saw him. We held him. We looked at him. We flipped the pages, gave him back to Joseph. And the church plays it that way. It says like, look, these were two different experiences. And so if you can't believe the spiritual, then fine, set the three aside. Here's this physical experience these eight are having. And if you don't believe these eight really saw plates or Joseph made some plates, then you can set that aside. And you've got these three witnesses who have this spiritual experience. It was kind of, it was kind of one of these things that I think the church has used by defining one as spiritual and the other as physical. And I don't know where I'm getting that from. I just know that's in my head as far as the Mormonism and the story I've grown up, I've grown up with. And, and now as you study this deeper, you begin to realize that you, that you, these guys probably aren't sure exactly what kind of experience they had. <laughs> They're unclear. Uh, doesn't that just create a lot of cracks? It does for me when I've never had a vision of something as physical as something like a giant piece of gold. Uh, you know, I've had um, dreams and emotions and what I would call spiritual experiences, but none to even close to resemble something that would be as physical as these guys have described. So I can't, I just don't have the, uh, I don't have the experience to even compare it to. Doesn't it say to you guys that with our viewpoint of 2017, looking backwards as a church, as a people, individually, we really should be a little more careful in ascribing to these guys finite beliefs and finite descriptions and finite ideas of what they what they saw, since their opinions, their their telling of these experiences change. They're they're, they're not consistent. How can we be consistent today? Right. And right. it's a good we thing. We as a church locked them into that. Yeah it's, yeah, it's a great thing. Right, that that we need to let go of some of this certainty and just realize this, like every other issue in Mormonism, is just a whole lot messier and that we ought to be careful as as an institution as well as individual members of standing up and proclaiming that we know beyond a shadow of a doubt the boundaries and lines and boxes that these experiences fit in. Yeah, I think it's well said. You know, but the other thing is John Whitmer yet again contradicts himself. I mean, he helped translate the Book of Mormon, right? So I've got a quote here. Myron Bond uh, told me last winter, sorry, Myron Bond says that John Whitmer told me last winter with tears in his eyes that he knew as well as he knew he had an experience that Joseph translated the ancient writing, which was upon the plates, which he saw and handled. So this is one of the scribes for writing the Book of Mormon, thing he saw and handled, and which, as one of the scribes, he helped to copy. 
as the words fell from Joseph's lips by supernatural or almighty power. So he's uh, definitely describing a physical experience there. Right, back to a physical experience. The other thing we run into, guys, is if you look at all the artwork in the church regarding these eight witnesses, there's there's this idea that, again, Joseph's just carrying the plates out in a box. They find some sawed-off tree that you know Hiram and Joseph probably pulled out of the ground the day before. And uh, they, Joseph lays the box on the stump, pulls the plates out, and shows these eight men as they're in a group so that they can feel and handle the plates. But that's not, that's not what happens, at least not according to John Whitmer. John Whitmer's final interview, and, and this is such a fascinating conversation that takes place. Uh, the interviewer says, I am aware that your name is affixed to the testimony of the Book of Mormon, that you saw the plates. Whitmer says, it is so, and that testimony is true. The interviewer says, did you handle the plates with your hands? Whitmer, I did so. Interviewer, then they were a material substance. Whitmer responds, yes, as material as anything can be. The interviewer asks, were they heavy to lift? Whitmer responds, yes, and you know gold is a heavy metal. They were very heavy. <laughs> the interviewer says, how, <laughs> right? When we all know now that gold's impossible. Like it's, gold would make these things 300 pounds and, you know, even stick pulling wrestling Joseph isn't going to be able to pull those off the ground. Um, the interviewer says, how big were the leaves? Uh, Whitmer says, so far as I could recollect, eight by six or seven inches. The interviewer says, were the leaves thick? Whitmer responds, yes, just so thick that characters could be engraven on both sides. Um, the interviewer says, how are the leaves joined together? Whitmer says, in three rings, each one in the shape of a D with a straight line towards the center. The interviewer says, in what place did you see the plates? And here's, here's a, uh, you know, a wrench being thrown in. Whitmer, Jake, or uh, John Whitmer responds that he saw the plates, quote, in Joseph Smith's house. He had them there. The interviewer says, did you see them covered with a cloth? He says, no, he handed them uncovered into our hands and we turned the leaves sufficiently to satisfy us. The interviewer says, were you all eight witnesses present at the same time? He says, no. At the time Joseph showed the plates to us, we were four persons present in the room, and at another time he showed them to four persons more. So you obviously have this contradiction to the artwork, to the story we're told, to the way we've formed our narrative. It's just one more time where Bushman's right that the dominant narrative isn't true. It can't sustain itself. Like, we have to back off, maybe. Um, Chris, I, I know you and I were talking a little bit out in the Hurricane store at Family Pond in our museum case, there's a, a first edition of uh, Lucy Max Smith's biography. I forget the name to it, but but you are saying that there that Lucy might have commented on this 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 experience. Yeah, uh, it's called Biographical Sketches of Joseph Smith the Prophet and His Progenitors for Many Generations by Lucy Mack, and it's it's published in 1853. We love the book. I, I know you, you and I pull it out and look at it sometimes because it's Brigham Young made several comments about it. He called it a tissue of lies and asked the saints to destroy the book. Uh, it was published without his consent by Orson Pratt in, in Liverpool and several of the saints did destroy the book and uh, very few survive today. Do you, do you by chance have a, uh, do you by chance have a first copy there at your house as well? I do. I do. Let me grab that a second. First edition here on my bookshelf. Let me, let me grab it here. <sighs> I'm going to move my drink and my Rolos out of the way here. 
<laughs> you doing lunges? What are you doing? <laughs> just coming over to my bookcase. Okay. Lucy gives an account. Uh, the following day we returned, we returned a cheerful, happy company. In a few days we were followed by Joseph, Oliver, and the Whitmers who came to make a, make us a visit and make some arrangements about getting the book printed. Soon after they came, all the male part of the company, with my husband Samuel and Hiram, retired to a place where the family were in the habit of offering up their secret devotions to God. They went to this place because it had, it had been revealed to Joseph that the plates would be carried thither by one of the ancient Nephites. Here it was that those eight witnesses, whose names are recorded in the Book of Mormon, looked upon them and handled them, of which they be re- of which they bear record. That's incredible. Um, just in case there's, you know, 100 or 200 of our listeners holding a first edition in their hands, Chris, what page is that on? That is on page 140 of uh, Emma's, or I'm sorry, Lucy Mack's book. Today we call it uh, The History of Lucy, uh, The History of Joseph, but originally it was called The uh, Biographical Sketches of Joseph. Cool, cool. It's quite interesting. Um, so you have Lucy Max Smith saying that the eight guys all get together, run out in the woods and see these plates. And then John Whitmer's telling you that he doesn't know what happened to the other four. They went and did something, but his four went inside Joseph Smith's house and saw them there. Again, it just, it just needs to maybe have us take a step back and not be so certain about these things. I think, I think in Mormonism, we're so accustomed to bearing testimony of historical events that we were not present for, that it would do us well to take a step back and just honor the fact that if we weren't there, like there's no reason for us to bear testimony that, that we know beyond a shadow of a doubt with every fiber of our being that something's true because we weren't there. And to hold yourself to those positions gets really problematic when the data starts to show there's too many paradoxes to hold that point of view. But, man, we all do that, right? How many members have you heard say, I was in the conference center when President Hinckley said women should only have one ear. <laughs> you know, we put ourselves in, we put ourselves in these um, events. We really have. The transfiguration of Joseph. I mean, people put themselves, or uh, a Brigham, it, it People put themselves in these events that they've heard 20 times, and they just, oh, man, I get to be part of this. And next thing you know, they were there. And I think John Whitmer is either – and I, I've also got to assume that there were liars back then and the people that exaggerated incredibly, just like we have in today's world. So maybe you just exaggerated it. You messed it up. One of the two, one of the two aren't, aren't – uh, uh, is, is incorrect, right? They can't have both. They can't have Lucy saying eight in the woods and John saying four in the in the house. Can you? No, no, right. So the question becomes again. I don't. I don't think it's about anybody lying. I don't think it's about anybody being um, exaggerating. Not even necessarily exaggerating, but just not being malicious. I don't think there's anything malicious here. I think Lucy Mack remembers the event one way, but I would. I'd be much more prone to trust John Whitmer's judgment that his memory is that he was sitting inside of a house, right? You would think if you're out in the woods with eight guys, that memory is very different from being in the house with only three other guys, right? And, and it, I, I would much rather hear trust John Whitmer in his perspective that it was two groups of four and that his group at least was in the house. Who's to say both, both events didn't happen? 
that they saw him twice? Sure. Like John Whitmer did, or at least his group of four? Sure. Who's to say? Was that like a just a dry run? <laughs> Maybe he showed them a few times to people. Once the Lord gave him the permission to show the eight witnesses, did it really have to be a grandiose event out in the out in the woods? Why couldn't he show them to him a little bit at a time and then show them all show them to him all at once? Doesn't doesn't Whitmer's interview though, where he tends to say like. Like, no, that's not what happened. I was in a house and there were just four of us. He, he almost seems to, by the nature of his testimony, say that's, that, that's not what happened. Like, there is two groups of four and this is where we saw them. Does that make sense? Yeah, we dealt with this when we discussed the first vision, the account, multiple accounts of the first vision. After the initial first person accounts of three or four of them, you, you get into the second and third person accounts. And we discussed how some people had said that Joseph had told them that Christ had blue eyes, right? And we, we discussed this, we, that sometimes we exaggerate stories in order to put ourselves above the other storyteller. I mean, uh, I had apostles come to the MTC, and I remember them speaking to us. But at that time, I probably went back to my room and, oh, did you shake... Uh, Elder Holland's hand. Yeah, yeah. Did you? Yeah, we all shook his hand. None of us shook his hand. We were just standing in line and he ended up walking out, you know, but we had put in our minds that we had gotten closer to him and shaken his hand and turns out we never did. Um, maybe that's not a good example, but, um, I can see these guys trying to one up each other and I throw Lucy in there too. The fact that John Whitmer says he handled the plates in Joseph's home uncovered, Emma never said that. That contradicts anything Emma ever said about. Um, and John Whitmer thumbing through the pages of the of the leaves. No one has said that. Oliver's never even said that. So I think he was trying to describe an event that put him higher than some of the other witnesses for one reason or another. Maybe we just don't know. Yeah, I was I was just thinking that John Whitmer is the church's first historian, and we probably should give him a little bit of credibility for being able to keep a record and keep it accurately since um, God himself was okay with him being the church historian. <laughs> Even if it's an a- inaccurate history? <laughs> well, I'm just saying that uh, maybe we ought to give him a little weight in his testimony rather maybe. than just dismiss it. Right, and at the very least, maybe that Joseph selected him because he was a better record keeper than, than other people who possibly could have hold that, held that calling. Okay, yeah. we'll give him that. Chris, you had mentioned Hiram Page earlier, and uh, you know Marvin Hill um, had a letter written by Hiram Page to the Ensign of Liberty in 1848. Hiram says, with only a veiled reference to what I saw, Page does not say he saw um, the plates, but the angels confirmed him in his faith. In 1847, McClellan asked Hiram Page about his faith in the Book of Mormon, and he received this uh, reply from Hiram Page, it would be doing... I would be doing injustice to myself and to the work of God of the last days to say that I could know a thing to be true in 1830 and know the same thing to be false in 1847. To say my mind was so treacherous that I had forgotten what I saw. Hiram Page's son also said, I knew my father to be true and faithful to his testimony of the divinity of the Book of Mormon until the very last. Whenever he had an opportunity to bear his testimony to the effect, to this effect, he would always do so and seemed to rejoice exceedingly in having been privileged to see the plates. So Hiram, uh, Hiram had some pretty solid testimonies right there, even to the, to the very end, too. Hmm. 
Interesting. That's interesting. That's a that's a unique way to describe his experience and his testimony to say um, to say that I could know a thing to be true in 1830 and know the same thing to be false in 1847 would be an injustice. You also have McClellan. I was going to say you have McClellan, who we talked about earlier, his credibility. Here you have McClellan being fair the other way. Like he's saying like Hiram Page held to his testimony and I'm perfectly happy sharing that with you. So it's not like we're only getting the negative from McClellan. Right. So Clay, you were referencing Hiram Page. Um, I have a quote here by Hiram Smith in regards to what he saw. He said, I had been abused and thrust into a dungeon and confined for months on account of my faith and the testimony of Jesus Christ. However, I thank God that I felt a determination to die rather than deny the things which my eyes had seen, which my hands had handled, and then in brackets, the plates from which the Book of Mormon was translated, and which I had been, which I had borne testimony to wherever my lot had been cast. And I can assure my beloved brethren that I was enabled to bear a strong testimony when nothing but death presented itself as ever I did in my life. And then a a correspondent in Salem, Massachusetts, referred to hearing Hiram Smith, quote, declare in this city in public that what is recorded about the plates, et cetera, et cetera, is God's solemn truth, end quote. So while we don't have much from Hiram, he seems pretty firm in the faith. Yeah. Yeah, he does. He doesn't seem, he seems very consistent. And then Phineas Young talking with Samuel Smith, so this is Hiram's brother, quotes, he says, quote, ah, said I, you are one of the witnesses. Yes, said he, I know the book to be a revelation from God, translated by the gift and power of the Holy Ghost, and that my brother Joseph Smith Jr. is a prophet, seer, and revelator. So there's a, there's a quote by Samuel Smith. But we don't get much from him outside of this. I mean, he's not saying a whole lot. No, and in fact, he dies very shortly after the martyrdom, I believe, within the same month, doesn't he? Right. Um, it, it is interesting, right? So going back to Marvin Hill a little bit, because Marvin Hill mentions earlier how there's these contradictions present. Marvin Hill's uh, trying to reconcile these contradictions, and he says this. He says, uh, quote, But why should John Whitmer and Hiram Page adhere to Mormonism in the Book of Mormon so long if they only gave their testimony reluctantly? It may be that like the three witnesses, they expressed a genuine religious conviction. The particulars may not have seemed as important as the ultimate truth of the work. So Marvin here, seeing these contradictions that we're talking about, is essentially saying like these guys had a testimony of the work, and so they're just not that, they're just not that concerned with being precise about the particulars. And and so maybe they are shifting their story based on the audience and Marvin Hill's perspective. Um, Jacob, Jacob Whitmer's son, uh, quote, My father, Jacob Whitmer, was always faithful and true to his testimony to the Book of Mormon and confirmed it on his deathbed. Uh, Peter and Christian Whitmer appear to have said little in public. It seems strange. They die in like 1835 and 1836. So from the time they have their experience till their death, there's five or six years there, and they say essentially nothing. Uh, there's little said in public recorded statements prior to their early deaths, though Oliver Cowdery states secondhand that they held firm to their testimony. Um, it, it is interesting, guys. You, you read Richard Anderson, and Richard, uh, Professor Richard Lloyd Anderson goes out of his way to, to paint these men as consistent, 
as their stories being consistent, as these men's lives being consistent. I was just reading before we started the interview that the the eight witnesses, uh, Richard goes into detail about the Whitmer family and the positions they held within the community and the things that were said about them by non-members. I mean, these guys were stand-up citizens in their area based on Anderson's work. And, and I, he's trying to keep this very coherent, consistent story. And, and as we're seeing kind of as we're discussing this, it, it really is more messy than that. Like, I'm not ready to to throw the towel in on any of this, but but it certainly opens up the door to saying like, these guys did contradict themselves on what their experience was and were left with a lack of certainty on what was physical and what was spiritual. So, Bill, you're referencing Richard Anderson's book, Investigating the Book of Mormon Witnesses. Richard Anderson is interesting because he's dedicated his life to um, – researching the the witnesses and offering a position that's different than, say, Grant Palmer would offer. Grant Palmer would say that the witnesses, the Whitmers, maybe weren't all that bright and just pretty susceptible and gullible. And Martin Harris was a bit of a buffoon. Um, Anderson says the exact opposite. He says these men were smart guys, um, went on to do many good things in their communities and... Um, he says, for example, let me offer what, what Bill Russell says. Bill Russell is a member of the Community of Christ and a professor of history at Graceland University. And I run into him all the time at Mormon History Association and the John Whitmer Historical Association. He's a great guy. Everybody loves this guy, Bill Russell. And he said, speaking of Richard Anderson's book, he says, quote, I believe that Anderson, like the 11 witnesses, is an honest and sincere man when he writes, after years of working with their lives, this is Anderson talking now, after years of working with their lives and their words, I am deeply convinced that their printed testimonies must be taken at face value, end quote. Uh, Bill Russell goes on to say, but I don't believe that his research by itself requires this conclusion. As he admits, quote, spiritual truths must be spiritually verified, end quote. So believers must make a leap of faith apprehending with their spiritual eyes rather than their natural eyes. Man, there's right. so many problems mm. with where we're going down. I really think the, the, <clears throat> the spiritual eyes and the physical eyes. I mean, you've got Isaac Hale, right? Emma's dad, who probably did Who's like, a critic? Who's a critic, by the way? Yeah. And never, a, and sub, never a supporter of Joseph. Never a supporter of Joseph. Said the Book of Mormon in his affidavit, Pearl Bud. A uh, silly fabrication of what falsehood and wickedness. He even said, I was allowed to fill the weight of the box, and they gave me to understand that the plates were then in the box, into which I was not allowed to look. So either Joseph just playing a big prank on him and putting some rocks in a box and say, yeah, I had to check this out. There, The plates are right in there. Or he actually let his father-in-law pick up the box with the gold plates in there, I, I, this one throws me off. This Isaac Hell quote that we found, it's, it throws me off. I can totally see Joseph wanting to convince Isaac. You know, he eloped with his daughter. Isaac didn't like Joseph. So he and Emma run off and get married secretly without the blessing of Isaac and his wife. You can see Joseph trying to get back in the good graces of Isaac saying, 
um, yeah, you can you can hold the plates. I mean, you can't look at them or anything, but they're in this box with this towel on top of it. <laughs> and you can see Isaac standing there. Seriously, man? You're going to let me hold this box, but I can't look under the towel? After everything, I'd let you do <laughs> So what was in the box? So Chris, what was in what was in the box? No, oh, I think the plates were in the box. <laughs> it would have been easier for Joseph to put the plates in the box than to go out what you're talking about, Clay, and gather a bunch of rocks up, all rattling together in there, shifting around, wait. Why didn't anyone just take the take the towel off the top right before Joseph could drop the sixty pound box? Whoop, just pull it off like a magician and look at it. Why didn't anyone ever actually see him underneath the the towel, man? No, Emma talks about feeling them under the towel. She talks about feeling the outline of them under the towel as they, she dusted around them on the table. Right. I mean, assuming, let's just assume for a moment it's a fraud. Joseph already has his play if that were to happen, right? I mean, when, when Sally Chase storms into the Smith home and wants to find the plates underneath the hearth where Joseph says he's put them, soon as they pull the bricks away and move it, Joseph now says, oh, I knew ahead of time that would happen, and now I've moved them to a barrel of beans in the in the shed or something. So I, I think there's, whether you believe in the, the story or not, whether it's God moving the plates or whether it's Joseph moving the plates or Joseph saying that the plates, which don't really exist, have been moved, <laughs> I, I think there's always this room in the story for Joseph to adapt if anybody were to do that, and, and we talked last time, I don't remember which, which I think it was the uh, the the fraudulent Book of Mormon episode we did. We talked about Josiah Stoll catching a glimpse of the corner of the plates as they went through a window. Um, <laughs> Isaac Hale, who's a critic, is hefting the plates. I mean, again, there's this back and forth. It seems like there is a physical object. Bushman likes to hold this point of view that there is a physical object. There is plates. So now the argument comes in. I think you're making the good point, Chris. It, it's important to recognize that Bushman says there's this physical object, there's these plates, and we can make the argument that Joseph's creating plates out of tin or he's making them out of something, but like you're pointing to, Chris, if it's just a pile of rocks in a box, we could pick that box up and heft it, and you would know right away that there's rocks tumbling around inside versus there being this object that's connected together and has to move as one piece. Yeah, that's why I say it was probably the plates you put in there. Why would he use something else? Right. And so even if you take the the idea that this is a fraud, there's something in that box. You guys are missing what I'm trying to lay down here. Chris says, well, that's why he probably put the plates in the box. Well, why didn't he show the plates to the people instead of having it be spiritualized? If we're talking about something physical, the actual plate were 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 in the box at one point, why couldn't they be shown to the three witnesses or the eight in a way that was purely physical? Because Isaac wasn't one of the three or the eight witnesses. We didn't get to see him. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, the apologetic argument is that God has decided who gets to see them and who doesn't. And and Joseph has already violated God's instruction once by letting Martin Harris take the 116 pages home. And so Joseph is being much more circumspect um, about who he allows or challenges or encourages to see the plates. I've got one more story about Martin Harris I want to tell before we before we finish. I'm sure everyone's getting tired. But a really, really fun story about Harris is he he says in uh, and it's in my Dan Vogel books on early Mormon early Mormon documents. 
he says that on one occasion he, Porter Rockwell, and another man were digging in the Hill Camorra for treasures in 1827. He says, quote, we found a stone box and we were ready to take it up. But behold, by some unseen power, it slipped back into the hill. So as it's sinking, according to Harris, one of them took out his pick and struck it into the lid, you know, to try to hold it back from sinking in the earth. <laughs> the blow took off a piece of the lid, which a certain lady kept in her position until in her possession until she died. Um, and then later, Brigham Young in the Journal of Discourses mentions this souvenir, this piece of the lid, um, and claims that it was actually kept in the position of mother possession of Mother Smith until her death. That's a cool story, man. 1827. Yeah. That is cool. 27. Three years before the Book of Mormon's printed, but but on the same year that Joseph retrieves the plates, right? Right. Right. Mm. What, do you, what, do you, what do you think they used that little piece of chipped wood for? Maybe a coaster? I think it's a piece of <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> well, it's either that or maybe a, maybe a pie work? scoop because it's... <laughs> shoehorn it's a rock man <laughs> didn't you hear what i said it's a corner of a stone lid you're not using it for a no shoehorn what's wrong with you guys <laughs> go get that piece Goodness of rock gracious. i want to use it for my shoehorn i think they probably used um, it for pie because it's you know it's it's a triangle <laughs> that makes more sense the than corner of the stone box <laughs> That, that probably, and this is probably, I mean, we're led to believe this is the box that held the plates. That's interesting. Um, we should probably state here, you talked about it earlier, Chris. I mean, most of these witnesses are at one point or another disfellowshipped, uh, excommunicated, especially the three witnesses. John Whitmer, um, is excommunicated in 1838. Uh, a month later, Cowdery and Whitmer, ex- uh, David Whitmer are excommunicated. So these witnesses are in and out of the church, some of them, and yet they're still not bailing completely on this story. Um, we ought to zip through just really quickly, guys, the, a few other extracurricular witnesses to, to the Book of Mormon. Um, William Smith stated that his father, Joseph Smith Sr., Never saw the plates except under a frock. That's kind of an odd one, but William Smith's kind of an oddball to begin with. He's kind of mentally ill throughout his entire life. And to be honest with you guys, I just don't believe anything William Smith says. Yeah, to say the least. Um, crazy. Yeah, yeah. Kind of crazy Willie. So kind of a nutcase. <laughs> um, William Smith. Let's see here. Let me just read these real quick. Brigham Young says, some of the witnesses of the Book of Mormon who handled the plates and conversed with the angels of God were afterwards left to doubt and to disbelieve that they had ever seen an angel, um, one of the Quorum of the Twelve, Dude, oh, a right, young right man there. full hold of on, faith. Please. That two lines right there, do you think Brigham ever would have considered that that was going to be a favorite among anti-Mormons? Read those two lines right there, Bill. Right, so if we read these two lines by themselves, and, and the critics use, like you say, Clay, the critics use this all the time. So you see this quote used by the Tanners, Decker, all those guys. Um, Walter Martin, quote, some of the witnesses of the Book of Mormon who handled the plates and conversed with the angels of God were afterwards left to doubt and to disbelieve that they had ever seen an angel, period, end of quote, <laughs> as far as the critics use it, right? But the quote obviously doesn't mean what they're using it for. When you finish it off, Brigham is saying, he fit, the very next uh, phrase is, one of the Quorum of the Twelve, a young man, full of faith and good works, prayed and the vision of his mind was opened and the angel of God came and laid the plates before him and he saw and handled them and saw the angel and conversed with him 
as he would with one of his friends, but after all this he was left to doubt and plunged into apostasy and has continued to contend against this work. There are hundreds in similar condition. And so Young's not even talking about the 11 witnesses. He's talking about others beyond that. And and you're right. I mean, one of the things that ticks us off when we want to deal with Mormonism honestly and vulnerably is to see people misusing quotes simply for an agenda rather than to try and be transparent and just put the info on the table as it is. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. One of the last things I wanted to point out is that all the living witnesses after Joseph and Hiram are killed in, in Carthage, all the living witnesses, which would be David and John and Jacob Whitmer, Martin Harris, Hiram Page, and William Smith, none of the living witnesses follow Brigham Young to Salt Lake. All of the living witnesses follow a guy by the name of James J. String that claimed that he um, that Joseph had given him the keys to continue on the, the work. And he digs up some plates and has seven witnesses to his plates, and none of those seven witnesses ever deny what they saw. I just I think that's fascinating that yeah, right. How much credibility how much credibility can we give these people, these guys, when they accept someone so easily as string as a new prophet who later turns out to be a fraud. String obviously was a fraud. And I'll tell you another thing, every one of the family members of the Smiths, except for um, Mary Fielding Smith, joined with Strang, even though they never met him. And here's a quote by from Lucy Smith in 1846 in a letter to Reuben Headlock. She says, quote, I am satisfied that Joseph appointed J.J. Strang. It is verily so. And then the same day, her son, William Smith, informed Headlock, James J. Strang has the appointment and we have evidence of it. The whole Smith family, except Hiram's widow, upholds strength. Even though these people never met the guy, they're willing to follow him. I'm going off a letter that he sent them. A letter mm-hmm. saying that I'm the new guy. That's it. Yeah, I think that says more about Brigham than it does about James J. Strang, in my opinion. But that's another that's another podcast. <laughs> uh, it's interesting. Um, again, new convert. Nobody knows who this guy is. Uh f- he comes up with a letter, and next thing you know, they're all following him. Uh, let me let you guys finish off. You guys want to read those last two quotes we wanted to kind of throw in. We want we want to leave the listener realizing, like, yeah, it's messy, but but there's some there's some faithful things going on here that give us give us reason for hope and to believe. And and I want to kind of lead us off or leave us off kind of with those two. If you guys want to tackle those, sure. I think um, uh, Chris had already mentioned the Emma Smith quote. Emma says that she felt the plates as they lay on a table. They would rustle with a metallic sound when the edges were moved by the thumb. Right. So there's some material. There's some material object, and it's metal. It has the shape and feel of uh, real plates and real a real you know the real form of what they thought these plates looked like. And then Joseph says to his mother Lucy, he says, "Quote, Father, Mother, you do not know how happy I am. The Lord has now caused the plates." to be shown to three more besides myself. I think we we talked about that later from her book earlier. We talked about that earlier. Right. And so there's this idea that that Joseph comes in, he's happy, he's content that that others are now bearing this burden that they've seen the plates and now can can shoulder the weight of of the restoration uh, going forward. I I don't know. I'd love to get like your guys's last thoughts. Anything like just comes to mind as you've as we've wrestled here for two hours 
on, on what these, what this experience is for each one of these guys and what the witnesses have to say and, and obviously the contradictions that are there, but at the same time, every one of these guys holding on to something and not completely uh, abandoning it. Well, I, I think it's fascinating that these guys all claim to see something. They, I believe they all saw something. And it's intriguing to me that Joseph Smith was the catalyst for this, that he was bold enough, that he had his, uh, that he believed enough, that he had faith enough that, I mean, think of how bold it is to walk eight guys or four guys out into the, out into the woods to say, we're going to go, I'm, I'm, you know, we're going to go look at the plates. And, you know, they're going to take a really close look at the plates. You would have thought he would have been a little nervous, a little, a little uneasy. Um, you know, to walk out there with the three witnesses and say, we're going to see an angel. The angel's going to show you these plates. That is, I mean, that's, that's powerful, man. That's bold. And I guess my final thought would be these guys all saw something. I believe they all thought they saw something and, and believe they saw something. And, uh, and that's, uh, I think we have to take them at their word. You know, as a final thought, a guy that I really like from church history, his name is John Coral. There's a uh, couple of mentions of him in the Doctrine and Covenants. A really, really rational, smart guy. Joins the church, serves as a counselor to Edward Partridge. Um, a really reliable source, really reliable reporter um, of the facts. He says to Joseph, this is after he's been the head guy in, um, in Jackson County. He says to Joseph, hey man, none of the things that are happening... None of these things are happening that you say are going to happen. And, you know, you say uh, we're going to redeem Zion and, you know, we're going to build a temple and all this stuff and, and nothing ever comes true. He actually <laughs> leaves the church here soon after. Um, and he says in his in his own words, he says, from now on, I'm going to rely on my own judgment. And I think it's interesting because somebody smart and rational like John Coral had been putting his faith in you know, other people, other things, other other thoughts. And finally, he says, I'm not going to do that anymore. I'm going to rely on my own judgment. And I think all of us have to take all these facts, all these all these statements that we've been talking about tonight. And we have to rely on our own judgment, along with prayer, along with the spirit and come to our own conclusions. Good point. I'm going to take a little more critical stance after reading uh, over the last couple weeks in preparation for the podcast. Uh, I'm going to I'm going to uh, take away a lot more. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to put as much credence in someone's testimony as I once had, mainly because these other religions were having their own set of witnesses throughout that same time. The Shakers and Lee had 60 people that saw her rolling book. You know, this, um, her uh, spiritual uh, her scripture. Um, Solomon Spaulding had seven witnesses saying that, uh, that that he was the author of the Book of Mormon. Um, you had people witnessing all around, and that was kind of the way to throw their weight, I think, or to add some credibility to their statements were to have a group of them all say they saw the same thing. Um, and if I was going to uh, critique the reason why these guys died with their testimony, especially the three, I would have to put it on 19th century uh, um, self-regarding sentiment, right? This sensibility of uh, my honor, 
it needs to stay intact. This, my reputation is more uh, important to me than than anything else, and I'm not going to die dishonorably. Um, so that's my critique of, of the witness statement. So you, Chris, you kind of laid out a, a faithful perspective, but also asking us to to rest our authority within ourselves. And Clay, you're you're coming down a little more critical and saying, "Yeah, I mean, this is really messy, and there's a lot of people out there who are doing similar things, and they've got witnesses to what they're doing too." I, I would simply say to the listener, as you're digging into Mormonism, you know as well as the three of us that it gets messy. That, that there's paradoxes and complexities and contradictions throughout. And, and what I would always suggest to the listener is to recognize that in a lot of places, the institutional church and the way it's written down its story, that it's overreached or underreached in lots of various places. What I would say though is that at least in this issue with the three witnesses and the eight witnesses, that there's room for faith. Like, yeah, sure. There's the use of the term spiritual eyes or, or not with your natural eyes. There's, there's these witnesses who are contradicting themselves slightly on whether they touched the objects or didn't, whether it was a spiritual experience or wasn't. But what we ought to recognize is that the way history is perceived and understood then versus now is very different. And as Marvin Hill said, like these guys had a testimony, of the restoration, and maybe they just didn't care as much about the particulars. And that seems offensive in our present day. That's just not the way the world saw things back then. And so on some level, we have to extend charity to these folks and recognize, yeah, there's plenty of reason. If you want to throw the towel in and walk away, there's plenty of reason and, and evidence to say, yeah, let's do that. What I'm suggesting, though, is that there's also room for faith here. There's room to say something happened. And we simply overstated the certainty of what that was. And when we lay all these sources on the table, which the internet gives you and me the first chance to ever be able to do that, like nobody else could do that ever. And so it's not fair to say they should have known every single one of these sources. And once you say, like, let's lay it on the table, let's back away from what the institution has said with certainty, and let's just leave a lot more room for faith, for ambiguity, and for us all, as Chris and Clay, I think, are both pointing to, to be reasonable and rational, but also to learn, as the scriptures say, by study and by faith. It's our prayer that the Lord will warm your shoulders as you as you think about these things and recognize how messy it gets, but also realize there's always room to move forward in faith. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Amen.